couple of ways I can start this. Um, I think I'll start by saying I really like Christmas. And I really like it more since I quit celebrating it. I am very serious. Because what I can do is I can pick and choose the things about Christmas that I really enjoy. I love the music. And it is wonderful music. I enjoy all of the family stories. Kay's story, for example, about our Christmas tree. We don't do Christmas trees anymore. But there's a family story there that is full of warmth and love and blessing. And every family has those things. And this is the time of year you hear all of that. But the other part of that is there is a great deal of mixed up theology that has to do with Christmas. Because so many people are talking about theological subjects and they say things and you just look and say, where on earth did you get that? That's not in the Bible. So what I want to do is actually talk about theology. And as I was trying to put this together, I'm on a mailing list. It is my class, class of 1967 at West Point when I graduated. And, you know, people chip in and chime in. And, of course, this time of year, people chip in and chime in about Christmas. So somebody chips in and says, not sure what to say here, but happy holidays. And then somebody else will chip in, ah, Merry Christmas. And somebody else will chip in and, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, somebody chipped in and says, this is the time of the birth of the Son of God, and I will not deny Jesus Christ. Okay, fine. And a guy named Mario then wrote the absolutely perfect introduction to what I want to talk about. And Mario said, let us assume across the board for all imaginable gods that he or them do not need our help since whoever is the true God is powerful enough to naturally convince humanity without all this pastoral prodding and sectarian strife. Why do gods need our help so much? And should we give it? Would any benevolent God not speak clearly and simply to mankind? Would he not allow questions to be asked of him? To Jehovah, I would ask, why all this mystery and hiding from us? Why get humanity involved at extremely high risk in the fight between you and your creation, Satan? Remember, Satan is your friend, not ours. Doesn't sound fair to me. We had nothing to do with that fight. There's something very unjust here. Oh, and I would also pray that hell be permanently closed before Guantanamo. Mario, by the way, is an extremely bright guy. When he got out of the army, he became a medical doctor. He lives in Puerto Rico. But as I read this, it's just this mishmash of junk and that stuff permeates all of our society, and it permeates the church and a whole bunch of other stuff. So what I'd like to do, especially since we're at the end of the book of Genesis, and it's a good time to look back, one of the songs that's going to be sung today is, Who Am I? I will suggest that song ask entirely the wrong question. I know who I am. I, mean, I can see me, I can touch me, I can query myself, I know who my wife is. And I can talk to her, and I can ask her questions, and you know, I can do stuff and watch how she reacts. And I mean, I can learn all sorts of stuff about that. The one that I don't know who is, is God. 
So the real question is, who are you, not who am I? And what God did is he made a decision. He decided to tell us about himself in a book. That's the vehicle he chose. So the first question that we really ought to ask is, what kind of a book is it? Now, Rabbi Foreman has got a series of lectures, each is about an hour long, where he's talking about this. And a lot of what I'm going to get, I'm going to get from what he said. There's a couple other sources. The other one is James Kugel, who's also an Orthodox Jew. The first question that you have to ask when you approach a book is, what kind of a book is this? So you look at the Bible and you say, well, it's a law book. Well, if it's a law book, why has it got all those stories in it? Well, maybe it's a history book. Well, if it's a history book, why does it have all those laws in it? And furthermore, if it's a history book, shouldn't everything be in chronological order? And it's not. So, for example, one of the things that Kay was asking me last week is we were going through the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, wait a minute. Joseph is down in Egypt for 21 years. And you have the story of Judah and Tamar juxtaposed with the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, right? Well, if that's chronological, then there is no way that Judah is going to have three sons become a widower, marry two of those sons off, and wait around until the third son is old enough to marry. All that doesn't happen in 21 years. So what the Bible has obviously done is it has plunked those two stories together because it's trying to tell you something by the juxtaposition. It is not trying to be chronological, and that happens all over the Bible. So it's not a history book because it's not chronological. Is it a philosophy book? Well, there's a lot of philosophy in it, but it isn't primarily a philosophy book. So let's, let's take, for example, a fog crept in on little cat feet. Well, if I don't know that that's a poetry book, and I think that it's a science book, fog crept in on little cat feet? Fog didn't have cat feet. So if I'm looking at the book as a science book, and it's actually a poetry book, I'm not going to understand what it's saying, and there's going to be stuff in there that doesn't make any sense at all. And what I'm going to suggest to you is people approach the Bible without understanding what kind of a book it is, and because of that, they ask the wrong questions of it. Well, what kind of a book is the Torah? Well, God tells us. He tells us in the name. What does Torah mean? Teaching and instruction. It's a guidebook. It's an instruction book. And if you approach it as an instruction book, then you can be perfectly comfortable with the fact that the sequence of stories may not be in time sequence properly. You can be perfectly happy that the laws are intermixed with stories because what it's trying to do is guide you. And what it's trying to do is teach you about three things. It's trying to teach you about who God is and how to relate both to God and the spiritual beings that are around him. And then finally, it's trying to teach you how to form good, healthy relationships and communities. So if you take the Bible as being an instruction book, then a whole lot of these questions that people, you know, like my friend Mario here, throw at it, well, why are you asking that question? It's not designed to answer that question. 
Now, Foreman says that there's three sort of crises of faith that happen to people who believe the Bible. And he talks in terms of a young boy in yeshiva. And he says the first crisis of faith is when the kid goes to the Natural History Museum. And he walks into the museum, and there are these monstrous skeletons of dinosaurs and mastodons and all sorts of stuff. And he goes and he says to his rabbi, where are dinosaurs in the Bible? Well, the Bible doesn't actually talk about dinosaurs. And in fact, what he says is the kid goes home to his father, who's a bright guy, a doctor, and so forth. And finally, his father said, all right, son, look, what you do is you take two boxes. And box number one is what your rabbi says in shul. And box number two is what your science teacher says and you see in the museum. And you put some stuff in this box and some stuff in that box, and you just keep it separate and don't worry about it. And of course, the kid says, huh? but I've only got one life. Why am I keeping this stuff separate? And of course, my suggestion is you don't have to. The next problem you hit is when you're about, oh, 14, 15, and you start going to a real science class in school. And you hit, pick your subject, background radiation, evolution, any one of the scientific things. And you go back to your rabbi and say, where's all this stuff in the Bible? Well, it's not in the Bible. Why isn't it in the Bible? Well, it's not in the Bible. Yeah, but why isn't it in the Bible? And somebody then comes to the Bible who is secular and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've told me that this explains how the world was created, but the story of creation doesn't match what science says. What do we do with that? And then the third place you hit is when you're in college, especially if you take a, a survey of religion courses. And one of the things that you're going to find is the documentary hypothesis, which says that the Bible is internally inconsistent. Right out of the box, we got two different creation stories. All right? You got Genesis 1, which is one creation story, and you got a completely different creation story in Genesis 2. Which is it? One of the things that I said years ago is in the 19th century and before, the educated man in most villages was the priest or the pastor. He's the guy that studied. He had the books. He was an educated man. What science said is we managed to run the church out of the business of cosmology by a rather simple application of tensor calculus. In other words, the educated guy in the church wasn't up to the calculus that was done by the scientific community. And the church dropped out. The church no longer argues with science about cosmology. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that there are answers to all of these questions, and I'm going to give you one of them. One other thing that Rabbi Foreman said that is also kind of interesting. With respect to the Bible, there are two kinds of questions. There are internal questions and there are external questions. So let's take the story of Jonah. Somebody comes up to you, who are a Bible-believing guy, and says, you're telling me that this fish swallows this guy and he lives for three days in the belly of this fish and then gets vomited up onto the shore. I, sorry, that doesn't make any sense to me. That's an external question. And the problem that person has, he doesn't believe in miracles, which is fine. And he just cannot get his head around miracles, but that's external to the Bible. The Bible simply asserts that this fish swallowed Jonah. 
An internal question, which is a much better question from our perspective, is what was Jonah thinking that he thought he could run away from God? So Jonah gets told to do something by God. Jonah picks up and heads as far away as fast as he can, gets on a boat, tries to leave. What on earth would possess a man of God who God speaks to to believe that he would be allowed or be able to just say, no, God, I'm not going to do that, and leave. That's an internal question. And that question you can ask of the Bible and you can wrestle with. The external question, which is, how does somebody live in the belly of a fish for three days? The Bible doesn't talk about it. It simply asserts that that happened. Believe it or not, your problem, not, not the Bible's problem. The Bible doesn't try and answer that one. So as you approach the Bible, it's really important that you ask the right questions. Because if you come at the Bible and you ask, how is it possible that this happened? If the Bible isn't trying to answer that question, you're going to spend a whole lot of time spinning your wheels, and you're not going to be any farther ahead than you started off. And furthermore, it is going to mess with your faith because, well, gee, the Bible's supposed to be true, and all this stuff's supposed to be in there. Why isn't it answering that question? Because it's not designed to. That isn't the kind of book it is. All right, so let's look at creation story. Since we just finished Genesis, this should all be fresh in your mind. Let's look at the first creation story. And actually, we'll look at the first couple, three sentences of each of the creation stories. So Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So, first sentence is dead, clear, crisp. There's a subject, God. There's an action, created, verb. There's an object of that action, heaven and earth. No ambiguity there whatsoever. God, subject, created, verb, heaven and earth, object. Then we say, well, hovering over the face of, where did all that water come from? That's an internal question, by the way, not an external question. And everything sort of kicks off, if you will, because everything is dark and chaotic and lifeless, and the whole thing kicks off with, let there be light. Now, from there, the sequence is wrong, because the next thing we're going to have is plants and vegetation. Well, anybody here a gardener? How long do plants and vegetation last without sunshine? Not very long at all, do they? But plants and vegetation occur before sunshine does. So there's something that's being said in that sequence. But if you are of a scientific persuasion, you look at this and say, this makes no sense whatsoever. Now, let's look at the second creation story. That's in Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So now, who's the subject? Heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth become the creators. Because everywhere else in scripture, we have this, these are the generations of, and the Hebrew word there is toldot, we've talked about it before. These are the generations of Jacob. These are the generations of Terah. These are the generations, so the idea is this is what happened to the family that was produced by whomever. Well, the first one is, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So in 
that since then, the heavens and the earth are becoming the parents, the creators. They are going to be the ones that create humanity. Now, God is very clear to say, oh, and by the way, I created the heavens and the earth so that you don't lose track of that fact. You got it? So it, it is not the case that the heavens and the earth have independent existence. They don't. They are, in fact, the creation of God. But what we have here is they become the parents, if you will, of the generation that is going to follow. So you have now a shift in subject. And the question becomes, why? Well, what Rabbi Foreman says, and I find this very persuasive, is the reason you need two creation stories is humanity is two parts. Two natures, if you will. So let's look at the first creation story. That feels to me cosmic. I mean, that's let there be light. I mean, that is the big bang, if you will, in secular way of thinking. This is when God created everything. The second creation story is from the perspective of the third rock from the sun. So the first one is big, cosmic, bringing everything into existence. The second one is, well, now, what happened on this ball earth? And we have then the creation of humanity from both perspectives. Now look at the creation of humanity in the first case. And down to verse 26 in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant you see that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for fruit. So first off, we know two things. We are created in the image of God. Now, what has God been doing up until this point in the book? Making stuff. So it is perfectly logical to assume that one of the things that we should be doing as beings in the image of God is we should start making stuff. And God made us, male and female, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Start making stuff. Little people. Right? Didn't he? Isn't that what he says? Sure. And, and oh, by the way, who's in charge? We are. We are. So, theological problem number one with a lot of the Christian church. God's in control. Well, that's not what that says. What it says is, we're in control. And I will suggest to you that if God's in control, he's made a mess of the place. Well, he has. This place is a mess. If God's in control, he's doing a really lousy job. Because the first thing he says is, you're in charge. I'm giving you control. I'm giving you dominion over the place. Take it. And start making stuff. Beginning with little people. And, oh, by the way, notice the relationship between male and female. There's no hierarchy. There's nothing there. It is simply there are two parts of you that are going to be necessary for you to make stuff and be a creator in the image of God. 
and that's it. How many commandments are there? One or two, depending on your point of view. Is there anything about the knowledge of good and evil here? No. So the only commandment that we're given at this point is be fruitful and multiply, and you're in charge. Right when you get work. So now let's look at the second creation story. And what I'm saying to you is the second creation story is micro, smaller focus. We're now on the perspective of the sun. And by the way, what kicks everything off in the first creation story? Light. Now let's look at the second creation story. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. What's missing at this point for life? Water. And in fact, there isn't anything in this creation story about light or the creation of the sun or any of that kind of stuff. The thing that we're missing at this point is water. And so you can sort of infer based on the first creation story, that in fact you do have a sun and all that kind of stuff, and the earth is barren because it's dry. So the next thing that happens is, verse 6, and a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. So the first thing that happens that kicks everything off here is water, not light. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So once we have moisture, God can then take this clay, if you will, that's got some moisture in it now, and he can form man, and he can breathe in, and we now have the creation of humanity. So you have the creation of humanity now from a different perspective. Now, perspective is important. For those of you who are engineers, you'll get this immediately. The rest of you try it. If I want to know where I am, one of the ways I can do this is I can take a compass and I can take a sighting on Long's Peak. And I can take another sighting on one of the flat areas. And that will give me two lines. And I can take a map and I can draw those two lines on a map and where they intersect is where I am. Now, where I am doesn't change, but my perspective on where I am depends on whether I'm referring to Long's Peak or whether I'm referring to the flat areas. Another example, take a movie. You've all seen movies, and you've also then seen the subsequent, the making of the movie. So, for example, you watch Star Wars. Well, within a few years, somebody puts out another movie, which is the making of Star Wars. And they give you all of the details behind the scenes and all the stuff that goes on. So as you're watching Star Wars, you've got one of the heroes, I don't remember which one, going across the desert on this hovercraft. And he's leaning over like this, and he's going like mad, and you can see him floating along. Well, when you go to the making of, what you see is that same scene from a different perspective, and what you see is that the wheels are made of mirrors. What he's riding is actually a motorcycle, and the wheels are made of mirrors, so as you're going along this way, and the camera is looking straight sideways, it looks like it's flying. You change your perspective, and you can see 
that he's actually on a motorcycle and there are mirrors there. Both of those things are true. It is simply a question of perspective. How do you look at it? And you get different information on how you look at it. What God is doing with these two creation stories is he is giving you two different perspectives on the same event, both of which are true. Because in order for you to understand who he is and your relationship to him, you need a more complete picture than either one of the stories provides independently. And in that sense, then, there is no contradiction. So let's continue. The next one, starting in verse 10, is we got this business with the rivers. Why do we have rivers in the middle of the creation story? The rivers with the gold and the bedellum and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, from the perspective of the heavens and the earth, the rivers are the things that distribute the water which gives the life. So from the perspective of the generation of the heaven and the earth, the rivers are really important. So you have the description of the rivers, and then down to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So how many commandments do we have? So one commandment is you will eat of the fruit that I have put out there. I want you to enjoy all this fruit that I've made for you. And the second commandment is I'm the one that gets to decide what's good and bad. Those are your only two commandments. Notice that there is no, you're made in the image of God. That does not appear in the second story. There's no made in the image of God. There's no take dominion over everything. There's no you're in charge. None of that stuff is in the second story. And what I'm saying to you is in order to understand our relationship to God, we need both of those stories. From the first story, we know we're made in the image of God and we know we're in charge. From the second story, we know that all of this stuff is for us to enjoy. And oh, by the way, God is the one who decides good and bad. Remember, the second story starts off with these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when God created them. Remember, it's still coming back and saying God is the creator. So we're not losing track of the fact that God is the master. And what he's done is he says, you're in charge of the place, but I am reserving this one tree, and the purpose of that tree is I'm the one that gets to decide what's good and bad. And then we have the creation of woman. Completely different story. Now instead of just male and female, he created them in the first story. What we have is a separation of the masculine and feminine side of humanity. And oh, by the way, we have the naming of the bugs and all that kind of stuff. Because the idea there is to convince us that the only thing in this creation that is suitable for each of us is the other half of humanity. I mean, you can love your pet dog and all that kind of stuff, but your pet dog is not your helpmeet in the sense that your husband or your wife is. And that's the purpose, by the way, of going through and naming all this stuff. You go through and you inventory all the animals that were created and so forth, and what you find is none of them is satisfactory. The only thing that is satisfactory is your other half. So what I'm suggesting to you is these are not two stories that are somehow cobbled together by some 
desert tribe, these are in fact carefully crafted to give us a complete understanding of our relationship to God and to lead us and start us on the road to understanding who God is. He's the one that created it all. He's the one that gave us the keys. He's the one that made the stuff that he wants us to enjoy. He does reserve one thing for himself, however, and that's the knowledge of good and evil. He wants to be the one who decides that. Now, of course, we immediately mess it up, and we have the business with the garden, and we decide that we're going to be the ones that are going to determine what's good and evil. And what immediately flows from that decision? Murder. Because you have the story of Cain and Abel. And God says, I like Abel's sacrifice, I don't like yours. And Cain says, I'm the one that gets to decide what an appropriate sacrifice is. I'm the one that gets to decide what's good and bad here. And I'll go kill my brother to make the point. Isn't that what happened? Let's go back to my friend Mario. Mario is deciding for himself what is good and bad. And what he's deciding is that any good God would do these things that I think are important. Isn't that the thing he's saying? Any good God would do the things that I think are important. So Mario has said, I get to decide what's good and bad here. And this God that has been described to me by all you Christians doesn't meet my standards. And I will gently suggest that there's a whole lot of the world that looks at God and says, he doesn't meet my standards. And I will gently suggest that a reason for a lot of that is people approach the Bible with the wrong set of questions. And if you approach the Bible looking for dinosaurs, or you approach the Bible looking for background radiation, or you approach the Bible looking for evolution, or you approach the Bible looking for half a dozen other things, you're going to be disappointed because the Bible doesn't talk about those things. What God is saying is the thing that I am teaching you here is what do you need to know to know who I am, to know what your relationship is to me and the spiritual beings around me, and how do you form good relationships and good communities. That's the purpose of the book. And yeah, there's scientific stuff in there and all that kind of stuff, but it's not a science book, it's not a literature book, it's not a history book. All that stuff's in there, but if that's what you're looking for, unless you understand what kind of a book you're reading, you're going to get confused. Just like if you read the first creation story and you say, how do we get all those plants when there's no sun, moon, and stars? Well, it's not designed to do that. The story is designed for something else. i got to tell you, I... I'm not a fan of contemporary Christian music because so much contemporary Christian music is what I call creepy virtue signaling, which is to say, oh man, I'm just going to use every superlative word that I can to describe you, and in that I'm going to show just how worshipful and reverent and pious I am, and a lot of it is nonsense. The fact that you stack superlative words one on top of the other doesn't mean that you are describing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as he describes himself. And it may seem really pious, and it may seem really spiritual, but it's sludge. And that's what happens at Christmas. And that's what happens at Easter. 
is people just get all gooey inside and they start stacking superlatives on top of the other. And the next thing you know, you got Christmas trees and you got wreaths and you got Yule logs and all sorts of stuff because everybody wants to bring their important stuff into this really important holiday that's the birth of the God that I love. And who are you to say that I can't worship this God the way I want? And boy, a Christmas tree just says it for me. And we all do that. We do. And so as you go about your life, and you, know, you listen to Christian radio and you listen to Christian music, understand that there's a lot of junk out there. Just read the book because God tells you what he wants you to know. That's the purpose of the book, is for him to tell you what you need to know about him because you cannot go up to God's door and bang, 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 bang. Hey, I got some questions from you, bud. And if you don't answer the questions the way I want to answer, hey, you know, heck with you. This is my friend Mario. Well, you can't do that. And it doesn't matter how sincere you are, God's just going to look at you and say, I gave you the book. Go read the book. Now, everybody here has a different background. And some of you came up as Baptists, and some of you came up as Catholics, and some of you came up as Episcopalians, and some of you came up as Pentecostals. And every one of you is bringing with you junk. You really are. And what I'm suggesting to you is read the book. And don't read it through the filter of your Sunday school teacher from the fifth grade. Because your Sunday school teacher, with the best of intentions, has a lot of junk, too. You know, no bad idea ever goes away. It just gets repackaged. I mean, Marcion, in the second century, said that there's two different gods. There's this God of the Old Testament who's mean and vengeful and nasty, and then there's this sweet, loving, gentle Jesus. And you don't want to mess with this God of the Old Testament. You want this sweet, loving, gentle Jesus. And he was declared a heretic. That doesn't mean his ideas went away. They're still alive and well in the church. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.